Albert Einstein once said that all religions, arts and sciences are branches of the same tree. As today's technology and global risks race ahead of our understanding and stretch the boundaries of humanity, we face unprecedented ethical conundrums. I believe that reaching beyond the sciences and religion to that third branch, the arts, offers essential insight into these challenges. I call ethical decision-making on the borders of humanity, ethics on the edge. We all teeter on the edge. How do we define a life well-lived in a partly virtual world? Where do we look for moral guidelines and truth when curated selves befriend each other through algorithms? How do we make conscionable decisions in the uncharted territory of civilian space travel, designer genetics, and artificial intelligence? And what about the problems that are still on the ethical edge, but shouldn't be, such as inequality or racism? Please join me in conversation with some of the world's leading artists and arts world pioneers as we explore some of today's most challenging ethical questions through the lens of the visual and performing arts, architecture, and literature. Sarah, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here and thank a great you. pleasure as well. Before we start with some of my ethics-focused questions, you started out performing at a remarkably young age. So can you just give us a little bit of um, some of the highlights about how you started your career? I started really young. So the violin sort of came into the picture when I was four years old. And I started going to the Juilliard School when I was six. So already at that stage, you know, just being at Juilliard every week and being surrounded by such astronomically talented colleagues, I mean, that really motivates you more than anything else. And then I made my big debut with the New York Philharmonic when I was eight years old, and that sort of snowballed everything, and the rest of my career just sort of followed, and it hasn't really let up since. So, Well, how one gets to Juilliard at six, and then simply two years later, let alone at the ripe old age of eight years old <laughs> with the New York Philharmonic, we'll come back to. Um, but it's extraordinary to have started so young and to have had what I would call relentless success since then. Um, what do you think is the role of the arts, whether it's classical music or literature or architecture or any of the arts? in influencing the ethics of a society in their time or in, for subsequent generations? I think there is a definite role for the arts. And when I say the arts, I mean classical music, opera, ballet, as well as paintings and sculptures and, and of course, you know, literature. And I also think that if you sort of follow history and the the ups and downs of the economy of any country that you are in, the, the arts and the support of the arts and the flourishing of the arts, you know, also followed that sort of uh, mountain with the peaks and the valleys and all, and all that great stuff. So I, I think there is definitely a correlation. I also think that as somebody in the arts, we do have a definite responsibility to not just go on stage and do our thing and jet off to the next city and just continue, you know, rinse, repeat and just do that every single day. But 
to actually stand up for something, you know, and have a voice. And whether that's politics, whether that's children, education, arts organization, whatever it may be, to at least have one focus and to make sure that it isn't such a self-serving profession. Because if you're not careful, you know, you, you become so involved in your own little bubble and you're so busy and everything is just so stressful all the time that you forget the big picture sometimes. And I think it really is important um, as, as artists on the circuit. So at what point, since you did start so young, at what point did you start to realize this responsibility as an artist? And at what point did you start to become aware of the, of the potential for the arts to influence the ethics? I think the very first time I was struck, literally like, like a, a bus like hit me, was when I had a performance in North Korea. And my, my family um, is from South Korea. My grandparents came from the north, and then they both came to, the, to, to Seoul to go to college, and overnight the border went up, so my grandparents never got to see their parents after that. So my parents were born in Korea, in South Korea, and I was born in the U.S. So it's very, it's very layered, and I have my own feelings about the north and south situation in Korea, but my, my grandparents, just listening to them talk about it, you know, they would get very emotional about it, and I could see that it meant a lot to them. So I did go. And it was an astonishing experience, unlike anything else I've ever done. It is very much of a closed-off society still to this day, and we're talking like 20 years ago when I went. Mm -hmm. But I did realize for the very first time during that concert, you know, with all these issues going on and all these diplomatic and political issues going on with the North and the South, here I am and I'm a South Korean American, American kid with South, uh, South Korean parents, and I'm standing on this North Korean stage with a mixture of the South Korean and the North Korean orchestra, you know, and we're performing. And if it's possible on one stage, if, okay. if it's possible for us to, to rehearse together, work together, and create a concert together on one stage, why can't it be a bigger stage? And why can't it somehow just spread and hopefully lead to you know, talks and hopefully a better situation? So I, I think that was the first time that I realized that music can be used, utilized uh, as a sort of soft tool mm -hmm. in a diplomatic, um, in a cultural diplomatic way. We certainly see with music in other parts of the world, we see with Daniel Berenboim's Divan Orchestra. Yes. So it's fascinating to hear what you're saying about North Korea because that's really an example that we rarely hear. Mm -hmm. um, where do you look for inspiration for your own ethical principles? Is it family? Is it uh, other musicians? Is it religion? Is it somewhere else in society? Where do you look for your sense of where true north is and, and the principles that guide how you're going to make your own decisions? For me on a personal level, it really does stem from family more than anything else. I grew up in the US uh, with fairly strict Asian parents, mm -hmm. you know, and anyone who grows up in a, in a mixed sort of household mm -hmm. will understand what that means. But, you know, I had fairly old fashioned, very traditional parents and I'm very very grateful for the values that they instilled in us and you know starting from speaking Korean at home you know respecting your elders the way that you know the the Asian tradition always does every time that you know I would either go on stage have a concert every time we had a photo session every time I had a a, a record cover you know um, session whatever it was you know not only did I have to be happy, my mom had to be happy, my dad had to approve, and they also wanted to make sure that, you know, we're in the classical music industry. We understand that everyone has their, their demographic, but at the end of the day, is this something that you want your grandparents to see? And that's sort of what I base my barometer on. You know, if I do a photo shoot, if I do any sort of, you know, 
um, magazine cover, uh, CD cover, whatever it may be. That's a great question. Would you like your, would you yeah. be proud to have your would, grandfather yeah. see it? Exactly. Would I be okay if my grandfather looked at this? And if the answer is sketchy, then we X'd it out. And it took me a while because at the beginning of my career, I was so young and I had my parents, I had various managers, and of course, you know, your publicist and just so many people and assistants and so many people surrounding you and helping you, but nobody actually tells you at that stage when you're starting your career out that you actually can say no. You know, so at the beginning of my career, there were actually, you know, photos and articles and, you know, et cetera, things that came out that I actually did not know that I actually could say, hey, you know what, I'm not okay with that. You know, can we X that out? Can we strike this one? And then only, it was only later when I realized, you know, it's okay to say no. It's okay to say, you know what, I don't like this photo. You know, I'm not okay with this. You know, it felt good at the time, you know, when we had the photographer there and the entire team there. And But on reflection. But on reflection. Um, this photo of me lying on a couch in a skimpy dress has nothing to do with Brahms. It has nothing to do with Beethoven. So let's strike it, you know? And it was later on that I felt, you know, that it was okay to say no. I think what you just said would resonate in so many different ways. I think many uh, in other industries, for example, bankers, um, <laughs> could all benefit from a lesson early in careers that, you know, you actually can say no. Yeah. Uh, but I think also what you're saying resonates so much with what's happening today with women and the global discussion around sexual harassment and sexual assault. So I think that's an incredibly important comment. Was there a point at which you felt that your Korean grounding with your family values really did conflict with what you were living as a young person growing up in the U.S.? I think, if anything, having that sort of multicultural upbringing helped, you know, when it came to having my career and traveling and being on the road and being a young professional at the time. If anything, if there were any conflicts, you know, with the parents and, you know, with the whole cultural clash, you know, it was probably just being a teenager. Right. And okay. just being a teenager and going to school. And, and I went to a wonderful, wonderful private school where we did not have to wear uniforms, which for me was a big thing. And in retrospect, maybe if we had, you know, uniforms, maybe it would have, you know, caused a lot less fighting every morning. <laughs> but you know, in, in a way, you know, things like that where all your friends are doing one thing or another and your parents aren't quite ready to, to allow you to grow up at that speed. And I was still at an age where I didn't have a cell phone until I was at least 17 or 18. There was no email at the time. You know, so if I wanted to talk to a boy, that meant he had to call my home and my mom would answer, right. you know? So like things like that, you know? So and parents and were running interference. They were, and if a boy called, they would just hang up on him. You know, so, <laughs> so, and now we don't have to deal with that because now we have cell phones and we text each other and, you know, so it, things oh, that's are true. Young people now. are living in a very different, it's much different, more well, independent environment. It's um, independent and I think a bit more dangerous as well. Very um, much so. Yeah, and less control that the parents may have, which I, I think is probably not that great. Um, but you would hope that, you know, kids, you know, with their parents, influence would make the right decisions for themselves. But it's true that today's parents yeah. may try very hard, but technology can help the children do an end run around the parents exactly. in many cases. Exactly. If we could talk a little bit more about how you integrate ethics into your own work, both from a musical standpoint uh, and from some of your extra musical activities. So um, from the musical side, in the research, I did a lot of reading about how committed you are to the composer's intention. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. That in and of itself is a performance ethos. Uh, and on the non-musical side, I understand that you've been appointed a cultural ambassador by the U.S. State Department. Yes. 
So if you could talk a little bit about that role as well. Yeah, of course. Um, so I think as a musician, um, especially as a soloist, I think our number one priority uh, should be the most honest messenger of the composer that you possibly can be. Um, I think it's important to, of course, put your own personal stamp on every single piece that you perform on stage. But um, the first thing that you should always have in your head is what would the composer, you know, um, what, what, what did he want? What is it that he wanted? And nine times out of 10, everything that you're looking for is in the music. You know, most composers were incredibly detailed some didn't care. <laughs> like some who, for didn't. example? Some, some just wrote the notes and said, here, embellish where you want Vivaldi, for example. Vivaldi Four Seasons, you will never ever find two recordings that are exactly alike because he was, he gave you a lot of freedom. He wrote the outlines of the notes and basically said, here is basically the skeleton of what I want you to play and go embellish, add in scales, add in runs, do whatever you want with it, you know? And that's amazing that a composer would give you that sort of freedom. But the majority of them, you know, give you exactly the notes, the phrasing, the dynamics, the nuance. Like they, they write down most of what they want. So if you, if you take the time to not just look at the score, um, well, first of all, learn your part and then look at the actual orchestral score so you have a bigger sort of uh, more horizontal view of what's going on. And then also read about the composer and not just his life, but what he was going through during the time that he was composing this specific work. It's, it's quite fascinating and it does change the way that you color and nuance a piece if you know more about the composer himself. So, And there are indeed extreme examples of that where it's quite obvious like Wagner and Hitler. Yes. Or, you know, Absolutely. but people don't tend to think about that when they're with a composer like Vivaldi. So, yeah, Wagner's one, Shostakovich mm -hmm. is definitely another one because he was um, composing under a role where he had to change opus numbers and wait mm -hmm. until Stalin died, essentially, mm -hmm. to come out with some work that he had composed earlier and he had hidden away. You come to respect these composer and composers, and I, I'm personally in awe of most of them. So, I want to do you know, my best in making sure that their message is portrayed in the truest form possible. And then also, after you're done with all that, to add in a little bit of your own personality so the audience members who come to the concert or, or who listen to your recordings, you know, the, as soon as they hear you playing, they know that it's They know true. that it's Sarah Chai. Yeah, so, I mean, hopefully you can put that all in one package. Now, when it comes to the U.S. Embassy's Artistic Ambassador title, I, I am so honored because it really has opened my eyes up to this whole other world, which is so rewarding and so fascinating to me because I, I do love working with children and whether it's school children in South Africa, um, in villages, to Bosnia right after the war where they sent me. I was just in Ukraine, like right after the, the whole crisis with Russia. Mostly focused on children? Yes. Incredible. And, and that was something that I, I wanted um, very strongly to do because I feel that it wasn't that long ago that I was a kid right. <laughs> myself and I feel that you can have the most influence on, on children mm -hmm. you know because they're still forming their opinions they're still forming who they want to be as adults and I, I just feel that you know you, you can really reach them in a way that is just so satisfying and so eye-opening for, for myself as well. I think this whole idea of focus on children, as someone, uh, I gather you don't really like the term, but as someone who is a child prodigy. <laughs> it's okay. Um, yeah, for, for these children to see you when they're at a time of such despair mm -hmm. and sort of see what's possible 
Uh, and I think that must be remarkable for them as well. What I love about the children, though, is that they're not jaded. Mm. They're not jaded, and they're still so hopeful, and they mm. still have um, really bright eyes and a bright outlook on the future. And I've seen kids, I, I've worked with a, an incredible variety of students, you know, kids who literally have very little and live in, in subhuman mm -hmm. um, climates and those who are incredibly talented and are fortunate enough to go to music school and they have the support from their parents and teachers to um, have the, the, the foundation they need to jumpstart a career. And it's quite amazing that you, you can go to these, these villages and small towns and, you know, I, the last time I was in Cape Town, you know, they took, they took me to a village um, about an hour or so away and the kids, they, they couldn't take their, in the, the instruments first of all came from the schools, right. but they couldn't take the instruments home and back to school because the walk back was so dangerous and they would 100% be robbed on the way. So they had to leave the, the, the instruments at school and if they wanted to practice, they just had to get to school early in the morning and work. And they didn't have sheet music because the school didn't have fun. So they did everything by memory. These kids were playing by memory and they're so, they're smiling and they're bubbly and they're happy and they just, they give you so much hope. And I, you can't come away from that and not be affected. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, to switch gears for a moment, mm -hmm. you have, as you mentioned, um, a business side to your art. Mm -hmm. You have record labels or whatever they're called these days, mm -hmm. and assistants and publicists mm -hmm. and all this. Mm -hmm. Could you comment on the one or two biggest ethical challenges you have on the business side? You know, the, the business side is actually a side that I do not enjoy. Okay. And I'm actually quite not upfront. Not surprising. I, I am quite upfront about actually saying um, that it, um, annoys me. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, my, I feel that I'm a musician and what I do is I, I practice, I go to all my rehearsals, I go on stage, I perform, I do everything that is expected of me that comes with the performance. And these days it's not just you play your concerto and then you go to dinner. It's not that anymore. Now it means you do meet and greets, you meet with the donors, you do all the donor functions that, that are required of you, you do Q&As with students, you do CD signings, you do autograph signings, you do everything and anything that is required of you to make sure that everyone who's at the concert and, and all the audience members mm -hmm. feel that they are a part of your lives and that I can also express my gratitude to them because I realize that they all have choices. You know, mm -hmm. They could stay home, they could go to the movies, they could go to dinner, they could watch Real Housewives on reality TV, they could watch the Kardashians, they could do whatever they and want. In today's world, even if they wanted to watch classical music, yeah. it, you know, everybody has everything at their fingertips exactly. at home. Exactly. So that's quite interesting. So what, um, you mentioned the word annoyance, yeah. and I can completely <laughs> understand that. What is particularly annoying to you about the business side? Well, I think for, on a day-to-day -day basis, it's just a sheer amount of emails okay. that fly back and forth. and. And I, I'm very grateful to have an amazing team. They are probably the best people in the business taking care of me, and I'm very, very grateful for them because um, they really do make my life run in an almost seamless way. You know, I have people who take care of me in the U.S. Um, then there's a European team and there's the Asian team, so they all they all talk to each other, and only very, very rarely are there ever hiccups, and even that is incredibly rare. So they are the best people in the business and I'm very grateful for them. Having said that, you know, there are, you know, issues that occasionally pop up 
that you know they, they can't all take care of on their own because they you know it is my life at the end of the day as for someone who's a musician you know and someone who generally loves to be on stage and to perform and just just play just play that's the best part you know it's the best part and everything else to me is just white noise you know so if the white noise takes up too much time then I then I just has there get been more than white noise have there been actual real ethical challenges in the business side I think um, surprisingly no Surprisingly, um, surprisingly, nothing too harsh. Um, I think if I had started my career out a little later, I probably would have encountered mm -hmm. um, some issues, just being the sheer fact of being a female performer mm -hmm. on the circuit in a very male-dominated world, right. you know? Um, and most conductors and most you know, presenters and promoters are incredibly, incredibly respectful. And in my case, I started out when I was a kid. So I've got history and I don't need to play that game anymore. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I do feel for some of the, the female. Um, Who start later in their careers. Later, and they may be compromised in a way. And, uh, and also like, you know, management and record, record companies. And you know, you may think that this will change your life, but at the end of the day, my philosophy always was that if they invited you here, if they want you now, right. you know, and if you say no now, they will invite you back. That, that is my right. philosophy, you know? And Again, you can say no. Yeah, exactly. You know, just as long as I think you learn how to say no, it really does simplify a lot of things. So if we broaden the lens um, mm -hmm. beyond the business um, mm -hmm. and even beyond your art, what do you think is the biggest challenge, um, ethical challenge that society faces today? I think balancing the, the artistry of the music world with the necessity of the economic world. <laughs> and I don't really know too many musicians who love the business side. A few do. A few do actually enjoy the business side of running things. But most of my friends and colleagues, I would say, you know, the majority of them don't. But, you know, unfortunately it is necessary. Uh, we do have good people, good accountants, good business lawyers taking care of us. But I think at the end of the day, it really does go hand in hand. And if you look outside mm. the music world or even outside the world of arts, mm -hmm. what out there in society, when you open the newspaper or you turn on the news today, what, is, what are the one or two uh, ethically related uh, challenges that make you really say, wow, that's the worst thing we have to deal with today. That's the most challenging thing we have to deal with well, today. Well, I think at this particular point, there's no job like the presidency that um, seems so repulsive right now. Right. I, I can't imagine any, why anyone would want that job at this point. And I feel- We're October 30th and, know, the, and the election is eight days away. Eight days away. We're eight days away and it is, you know, I, I am almost scared to watch the news now because every day there has been another another bombshell, another, you know, scandal, something else. So I just, I, I almost want to stop looking at the news now. And with your family roots in South Korea and your international career, mm -hmm. I think you're probably more aware than most of how important the U.S. presidency is globally. Oh, uh, completely. Beyond yes. I mean, the U.S. Uh, you know, the spearhead, you know? I mean, the, the U.S. really, we do. Um, lead the charge in almost every sense of the word. So since we're on the topic of the election, yeah. <laughs> if you had to recommend to mm -hmm. Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton some piece of art, it could be a work of literature, it could be a piece of music, it could be a painting, uh, that they should see, read, watch uh, for an ethics lesson, what would you choose? <laughs> well, I think someone should take away Donald Trump's phone. <laughs> I, think, 
I think he just needs just just to chill for right. a second. Um, and I think someone should take away Hillary's computer. Right. <laughs> I, I just I don't know. Technology is, is not. I, I don't think it's their friend right now. <laughs> and I think a lot yeah. of people are, get, are getting themselves into trouble with technology. Yeah, and, and the thing is, you know, I, at the end of the day, we all have something that we're probably not particularly proud of. But then again, we're not all running for for president. Right. You know, so I, you know, I, I mean, we can't live without without our phones, and we can't live without. In our computers, but we can choose to, you know, um, pick our words words a little bit more wisely when we tweet something or put something up on Facebook or anything to do with social media. You know, it's our choice. We don't have to be on social media. You know, I mean, I have somebody at my management, you know, who helps me out with social media, and I'm not running for president. You know, so if somebody like me, you know, has some help, then. <laughs> then why, why not get, get someone a little more qualified so than 3 So if we could uh, you know. delve into this question of science and technology mm -hmm. and music, um, mm -hmm. in particular live performance of classical music, mm -hmm. what do you think has been the influence of a very science and technology infused society on classical music? Because I've read wonderful quotes from you about how classical music doesn't use microphones, doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily need lighting, mm -hmm. um, isn't being kind of photoshopped, right. to use the word generally, mm -hmm. by any form of technology. Mm -hmm. Do you think science and technology is, is important for music today, or do you think that um, the real focus of music still needs to be looking at the composer's intention and staying true to the instruments and the, and the legacy? I think 100% we should be focused on the music itself. The music itself, the, the instrument itself, the composer, I think is plenty is plenty. It can be so enriching and so fulfilling just by itself. And you don't need the microphones. You don't need the extra lighting. You don't need the laser show. And especially when it comes to, you know, to, to all this amazing technology that you have in it. And, you know, sometimes you see it now, even in the classical world, where they not only try to mic you, but they have all these new halls that are acoustically adaptable meaning that they can raise the panels, they can lower the panels, they can open the curtains, they can close. So like, they can make you something that you're not, put simply. Exactly, and I always, when they, when they and, I, and I realize that it's a wonderful option to have, because with some halls, they're multi-purpose. You know, they are sometimes used for recitals, which means it's, there is a pianist and a violinist, that's it. A chamber orchestra, small chamber orchestra, or a full, you know, full-on orchestra with 100 plus musicians on stage. So I guess it would be nice to have that option. But my favorite halls in the world, you know, the Vienna Music Verein, the Amsterdam Concertgebouw, you know, the Berlin Philharmonia. I mean, these, they're halls. You don't mess with them. You don't play with them. You know, you go, you play in the hall, and if you need to tweak your own playing to make it you know, sound great in that hall, then you tweak your playing. But you don't start messing with the hall. Then it becomes the responsibility of the musician not and, an acoustic engineer. And, and you just, you don't want to start playing that game because then it's, it's like plastic surgery. I sort of feel that it's like plastic surgery when you start fixing the boobs or the nose or the ears or, and then everything just all of a sudden doesn't look right because you're fixing one thing at a time and sometimes you just need to just like take a step back and say, you know what, it's okay the way it is. That's just leave it That's a fantastic analogy. <laughs> Because it's, it's true that you, you wouldn't necessarily notice if, for example, adapting the volume might shift the tone or exactly. might create an echo of some sort. Or, exactly. Um, exactly. That's really, really interesting analogy. So speaking of being true um, to the legacy and to incredible instruments and mm -hmm. to the music, 
you have an extraordinary violin. Can you tell us a little bit about that violin? I am so happy with my instrument. This is a Guaneri del Jesu. It was made in 1717. So it is just under 300 years old. And I got it through Isaac Stern, who was one of my, my dearest teachers, mentors, coaches. I loved him. I absolutely loved him. And he was so um, integral to, to my life as a violinist and as a, um, as a musician. And he just, just to have um, an instrument like that, you know, which is a part of him. And every day I get to play it, and I'm reminded of him and the responsibility that I have as a musician to look after it and to make sure that it's in a good condition and in um, playable condition for the next generation of whoever might be playing it after I'm gone. So that really is a link between the past and the future. It really is. It's an extraordinarily beautiful instrument. Oh, thank um, you. Thank you. Do you have a particular work, uh, either a piece of music or a work of literature or a work of art that is your favorite, particularly from an ethics standpoint? I adore anything and everything that Brahms wrote. If you look at photos of him, you know, he looks very gruff and he's this big guy with a Santa Claus-like beard and he looks quite stern, but you, you play his music and every note is filled with so much love and so much compassion. And, you know, if you, if you read about his, his life story, you know, this was a man who had real integrity you know, and was such a loyal friend to everyone that was around him. You know, he had one love his entire life. He was in love with Clara Schumann, who was married to his best friend. So that did it. That was it. You know, he never got married. You know, he respected his friendship with Robert Schumann so much that he never acted on that. And to the day that he died, he never got married, and he, Clara was it for him. You know, so just, just the, the morals of the man, you know, and the music that he wrote, all the symphonies, his one violin concerto, I wish he had written more, but his one violin concerto, all his sonatas, I mean, it's just every note that he wrote was just pure perfection and just beauty. It's extraordinary life story also. It really is, it really, I mean, I just, I can think of maybe a handful of writers, you know, authors, poets, and a handful of composers who have really left their legacy, you know, in their art, you know, and it really is a legacy because, you know, it, it's, it's here and we're still trying to interpret them and we're st still trying to master them to a point where, you know, you were, I'm still in awe of them. <laughs> but it's still, that's a perfect example of how important it is to read about the composers in yeah. addition to facing the challenge of yeah. the music that they, that they created. Yeah, and then I think just, just looking at the notes and learning the notes is just really the tip of the iceberg. And you really can't get to the soul mm -hmm. of every piece unless you really do some research on the composer. So Sarah, when you teach, for example, master classes, mm -hmm. um, do you find that your students come prepared having invested in that research about the composer, about the era, about other composers of the same time when they're preparing and performing for you? I think every student is very different. You know, They all have their individual personalities, and mm -hmm. there are some that play amazingly well, mm -hmm. and they're great violinists, but they haven't necessarily done the research on the composer and getting to know the, the inner depths of the emotional side of the composer. And then there are those that really do their homework. They who may not be the most technically um, you know, firework sort of gifted, you know, um, violinist, you know, and that's in the technical sense, but they are incredible musicians and they really want to soak up as much knowledge as they can about mm -hmm. each and every composer. And I just, I feel that at the end of the day, it's not 
about fancy finger works, but about being able to sort of dive into the soul um, of every work that you're playing and really get to a level where you can actually stir somebody's emotions. And you can only do that if you understand the piece from the inside out. And I, you know, I, I sort of think that it's, it's, you know, it's like students that you have at school, you know, where some kids are fine just cruising by and getting C's straight through, you know, they'll still graduate, it's totally fine, right? Mm -hmm. And then there are those who'll, you know, stay for, you know, extra credit and they'll Office go that, hours and uh, yeah, for that, that, those, you know, extra right. credit, you know, points. And, you know, it depends on each individual, you know, right. one isn't better than the other. Just, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you, you really need to just find out which student really just genuinely loves doing what they do. So just as we start to come to an end here, you've mentioned technique and mm -hmm. finger work, and you've also mentioned the soul and emotion. Mm -hmm. You seem like someone who is so grounded in your own sense of principles and in your own sense of where your commitments are and where your personal ethos is, both as a performer and as a contributor to society. What um, do you think is the balance in ethical decision-making for you personally or for our leaders today uh, or for other artists between sort of emotion and intuition versus actual technical thinking about, you know, rational decision-making? I think at the end of the day, it really is about surrounding yourself with good people, um, people that you are happy to admit are smarter than you and that you don't mind going to for advice. I think everybody has a certain amount of pride, but at the end of the day, you, you just need one person. You need one person that you trust. Um, that you can be completely and totally honest with and you can really bear your soul and ask for honest advice and whether you take it or not is up to you. But I think um, at the end of the day for me, I'm, I, I rely heavily on my mom. Um, I also rely heavily on my very first manager. Um, she was the one who really helped me start off when I was eight years old and she has long retired but I still talk to her because I, I so trust her. So this listening and taking a deep breath. Yes, and I also feel that people who have been in the business longer than you have have a, have a lot of really good insight. They've seen it all, you know. They've seen it all, and I really do feel that I. I mean, I I do personally respect their experience a lot. So I I do feel that you know it's okay to sometimes just swallow your pride and say, hey, I need help, <laughs> you know? Well, even, somebody <laughs> is, even somebody as renowned as you, look to look at people who are, who've been in the business longer or who, yeah. Yeah, and I, and I think it's, it's you know, it's, it's really good to at least have one, whether it's a coach or an advisor or someone that you, you trust. Sarah, what have I not asked you that I should have or that you'd like to comment on? I think you covered a lot today. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, this, yeah, this is fascinating for me as well because, you know, sometimes you, you spend all day, you know, on your instrument and talk about mm -hmm. music and you, you know, sometimes don't get to really delve into the deeper issues like ethics, you know, in society and music and what it does really for us as, as a well-rounded human being. And I, I think it's fascinating what you're doing. Thank you so much Thank again. You. It's been such a privilege. Thank you so much.